Well, a couple of weeks ago when uh, Eric was away, I spoke to you about conscience. And I said that we would discuss it some more um, soon. I want to briefly, as briefly as I can, review the main points that we covered then, and Lord willing, um, move forward and expand a little bit this afternoon. We noted a universal something that we all experience, a universal argument that takes place in our minds. Should I do this? Or should I not do this? You remember this? We recall that comic device that we've seen in the funny papers, a little forked tail comic devil on one shoulder and a little winged comic angel on the other shoulder whispering in the ear, do it, do it, don't do it, don't do it. And it resonates with us because we've all experienced it. We've all experienced mental conflicts about what to do or not do. We've all had the experience of almost having like voices in our heads arguing about what to do in this or that circumstance. Like, tell the truth and get in trouble. Or lie and skate. And which do you do? And even when you know it's wrong to lie, you remember uh, a lie is an abomination in the sight of the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. And we asserted that the human conscience is something that we have as the result of the Imago Dei, as a result of our being created in the image of God. And we noted before that the possession of a conscience is a human capacity. Remember this? A working conscience is not universal. Just like every human capacity, not every human achieves the capacity of a working conscience. We noted a baby can die in infancy, never having spoken a word. And speech is a human capacity. Never having faced a dilemma of consciousness, but still, she was a human. That baby was. So, not all humans achieve a working conscience, but conscience is a human capacity. I told you about Jeannie seeing patients all the time who, because of stroke or a head injury or dementia, they've lost the moral judgment that they once have. I mean, you you wouldn't want them making choices for you. And we reminded ourselves of the creation narrative. We read it last last time when we talked. And we learned the specificity in the narrative that humanity, male and female, are created in the image of God. Not fish, not fowl, not horse or cow or cat or dog, but man, human, woman, human, imago Dei. So conscience, we said, is inherent in humanity. We inherit it from God, from His image in humanity. Conscience is not the result of the fall. 
Conscience is a result of the image of God in humanity. And conscience, like all the rest of the human being, was damaged by the fall. The fall affecting the totality of our bodies and our minds, our psychology, even our consciences. So, to let your conscience be your guide, risky. Risky. And we noted when we talked before that since Jesus is fully man, is Jesus fully man? Did you learn the creed when we studied it? He is. Since Jesus is fully man, Jesus had a conscience. More properly, we could say Jesus has a conscience. We also noted that Jesus' conscience is different than ours because he has never sinned against it. And his conscience is perfectly in tune with the will of God the Father. Ours are not. We then considered something strange and interesting. The fact that all of us care intensely about the verdicts of our conscience. And we noted people have often committed suicide, killed themselves because of secret, hidden guilt. And I reminded you that you hear on the news several times a year about some suicide note that solves several crimes. The guy says, I killed blah, 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 and we went nuts. He killed himself. Conscience. Conscience. We noted this as a notable theme of remarkable literature, the telltale heart. We talked about crime and punishment. Conscience. And we noted the strangeness of our great care and interest in the verdicts of our conscience. And when I say strange, remember this idea that that we posited. I ask you, if you heard that a judge had decided, I'm going to hear my own case, what would you think? We noted you would think, that is massively corrupt. Or that guy's a nut. That guy's crazy. It's crazy. Can you imagine? Here he is in his robe up on the bench, hearing the case, and oh, now he's down on the witness stand offering a defense. Now he's back up on the bench and he's saying, not guilty. Not guilty. You'd think, this is a joke. This is a joke. And yet, friend, you and I judge ourselves every day. And it does not feel like a joke, does it? It feels as serious as a heart attack. The conscience, and not just the Christian conscience, the human conscience, the conscience is a God thing. It's a God thing. It's mysterious, but it's how God made us. And we care a lot about what our consciences say. We read that famous yet very disturbing passage from Romans chapter 1 where the great apostle asserts a universal intuitive knowledge in humanity that God exists. And the clear teaching of the Bible that when humans appear not to have that knowledge, the Bible teaches that it is because having that knowledge, they suppressed it. They held it down. There is, in humanity at large, a sense of impending judgment. Almost an innate knowledge that secrets will be revealed. 
that a time of accounting is coming. And whether you studied accounting or not, you'll give one. We're all accountants. Conscience is serious business. Conscience business is serious business. The judge is in our heads, and though it might seem absurd, it's deadly serious. It really is. People literally die because of their consciousness. We noted that for us, Christians, for us, the conscience is a divine gift. Not something from mama, not something from daddy, a divine gift. Something from God. And we noted that all the gifts of God are good. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. We read some text that taught the blessedness, the happiness of the one whose conscience is clean, the one whose conscience is clear. And we noted that like James, the conscience deals in black and white. Like black and white James, the conscience does not deal well with nuance, doesn't deal well with gray. It's not good at negotiation. It's good at accusing and it's good at excusing, but not very nuanced, the conscience. We noted that if you go against your conscience, especially if you repeatedly go against your conscience, that is a recipe for psychological disaster. You won't be blessed. You won't be happy. You'll be unhappy. You will be unhappy. Your own mind will take away your blessed peace if you go against your conscience. But obeying a rightly functioning conscience yields happiness, blessedness, human joy. And that's why it's important for us for Christians to train our consciences so that we can have a good conscience. And the meaning of good in that context is twofold. A good conscience is a conscience that's not been violated. And a good conscience in that that context is a conscience that's been trained in the good ways of God so that it provides good and sound guidance. I know that was a lot. But without the detail that we, um, that we talked about last time, those are the main ideas that we covered. So, now I want to think a little bit more about the human conscience. Um, it is exclusive. Your conscience is exclusive. Yours is yours. And mine is mine. Mine's not yours. And yours certainly is not mine. It's exclusive. They might overlap. Because we're Christians, they do overlap a lot. But they're not the same. You you know this, don't you? I, I know you do. We have made, in the history of our church, we've made explicit allowances in the history of our church for matters of conscience. Consider, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread 
and kosher wine. Exactly the elements that the ancient Jews used at Passover and exactly the elements on hand on the night before his crucifixion when Jesus repurposed those elements for the new covenant feast of remembrance, the Lord's Supper, or what we often call Holy Communion, what did he use? He used the Passover elements, unleavened bread and kosher wine, right there on the table. And since Jesus used unleavened bread, and since Jesus used kosher wine, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we as closely as possible approximate what those early Christians sipped and what they ate? Well, we try to. And so, we use unleavened bread. And so, we use kosher wine. We don't use saltines or Ritz crackers. We would in a pinch, wouldn't we? We would. But we have ladies that make unleavened, yeastless bread like the Jews have had at Passover. And we use kosher wine. It's usually Mogan David or Manna Shevitz. Anything about those names sound funny? Those are Jewish wine companies. That's what we usually use. What if all we could find at the store was non-kosher wine? Camus. Cabernet Sauvignon from California. Not kosher. Would we use it? Sure. Sure. But when we're able, when we're able, we try to approximate what we think the primitive church would have used. Well, in the history of our church, actually on more than one occasion, we've had prospective members who because of conviction, and if I recall correctly, in one case because of a vow, would not or could not drink alcohol. Conscience, maybe even a vow, forbade it. And what the church did was it made an allowance for conscience sake. Are you with me? The church said, in essence, we don't agree. We don't agree. Jesus used real wine. There wasn't refrigeration in ancient Israel, so it was either fresh grape juice or it was vinegar or wine pretty quick. And you don't have to instruct your readers, Paul, not to drink too much vinegar. Right? So, this is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of individual conscience. And we, that is First Baptist Church Parker, cannot instruct you to violate your own conscience. And so, we make an allowance. And some of you may not know this, but for years and years and years, there was a little strip of tape on the communion tray every time we had communion. And when the wine tray was passed, those members, they knew that the little cups next to the little strip of tape didn't have alcoholic wine. They had grape juice. And so they would take those. 
And so with the church, they could celebrate Holy Communion and at the same time not violate their individual consciences. And church, listen, this is important. Understanding the exclusivity of conscience, the importance of charity and gentleness and patience. It's important. I tell, I tell this to young accountants sometimes, but it's important here too. It's important to be able to tell the difference between a pickle and a watermelon. They're both green. They're both edible. One's small, one's big. They're both full of flavor, but they're very, very different. It's important to be able to tell the difference. And I've met people before who, from a conscience perspective, couldn't tell a pickle from a watermelon. Have you? People who would have said to that brother or sister, well, Jesus drank wine. Jesus turned water into wine. There were no refrigerators in ancient Israel. You're wrong. You're an idiot. And your conscience is wrong. And you need to break your vow and fix your wrong conscience. Or you can just head on down the road. No Christian communion for you here. Can you imagine that? Do you think that could happen? Friend, it has. Not here, thank God. I know this is almost unimaginable in a day where there are multiple screens in almost every room, but when I was a boy, when I was a boy, I knew Christian families whose policy was we don't go to movies. I know some of you find that hard to believe with the proliferation of screens, but their policy was we don't go to movies. And it was a matter of conscience. At least to the father or the mother it was. (laughs) And so the children in that home didn't get to see any movies. Now that wasn't the home that I grew up in. We were allowed to go to what my parents considered good or at least approved movies. And I believe that was wise. I do. I believe it was wise because I remember friends who, as soon as they, quote, left the nest, went to any and every movie that they could. Because, you know, forbidden fruit. Whew. Attractive. And they had absolutely no ability to discern between a good movie and a bad movie because they hadn't had any training when they grew up. Now, here's the question I ask you. Were those parents who said no movies, were they wrong? Or maybe the ones who allowed their children to go to movies, were they wrong? Saints, do you know that today... In our day, there are Christian churches that I've heard referred to as, quote, homeschool churches. And if I understood, if I understand what was meant by that, 
when I heard such a description, what it meant was all the children in that church were homeschooled. And the idea was homeschooling is a tenet of Christianity. And it's not. It's not. Christianity, like Judaism before it, teaches that God gives children to fathers and to mothers and commands those fathers and mothers to rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do you agree with that? Well, let me tell you something. To add to the commands of the Lord is not wise. Please, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. To add to the commands of the Lord is not wise. The Spirit of God can help parents. He helped mine. He helped mine. And let me tell you something. Those of you who love your parents, I am really glad that I had my parents and not yours. And I hope you could say the same thing. I am so glad I had the parents that I had and not the ones you had. And I hope yours were good. But I hope you could say the same thing. God knows what He's doing, friend. And the kingdom of God is not about homeschooling or movies or wine. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable unto God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith we may edify one another. Romans 14, verses 17 through 19. So, friend, let me ask you something. Do you think that my parents, who let me go to, quote, approved by them, movies, do you think they thought they were doing the best they could for me? And let me ask you this. Do you think those parents of my friend who didn't allow any movie watching, do you think they were doing what they thought was the best they could do for their children? Were either of them right? Were either of them wrong? Well, I hope you're thinking. I submit to you that since the fall, which included the fall of the human conscience, since the fall, no fallen human conscience has ever, ever fully aligned with the perfect will of God. Do you agree with that? And friends, so listen, listen. Though our consciences are valuable, really even priceless, our consciences, though valuable, are not infallible. And you got yours, and I've got mine, and they're not the same. So let me say that more clearly. The human consciences we now possess are not infallible. They are fallen. In other words, they are the exact opposite of infallible. They are fallible. 
And so it behooves us, Christians, it behooves us to calibrate and train our consciences from Holy Scripture and from church history. Couple of couple of principles. Listen. God is the Lord of the conscience. And another principle, conscience ought to be obeyed. God is the Lord of the conscience, not your conscience itself. That would be idolatry. Not you, not your parents or your pastor or other Christians. God is the Lord of the conscience. And principle, the next principle, conscience ought to be obeyed. What this means for the Christian is that if God, through your seeking of Him and through your study of Holy Scripture, convinces you that your conscience is registering an inaccurate judgment, your conscience should bend to God. Your conscience should be adjusted. It should be retrained. But in the absence of such a conviction, your conscience should be obeyed. The results of a repeated violation of the conscience are just too, too risky. Catastrophic. That's why Peter had to say, we must obey God rather than man. Acts 5.29 And listen, friend, that's true when either the man or the woman in question is you. You understand? We ought to obey God rather than man. That's even when the man in view is you. So if you ever find your conscience in disagreement with the Almighty or His Word, you need to alter your conscience. And this is rare, but it's not new. Uh, remember, you remember Peter's conscience would not allow him to kill and eat. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, I could never do that, Lord. I couldn't do that. Peter couldn't eat those clean animals that God had cleansed. Peter was wrong. God let him know he was wrong. If I've cleansed it, who are you to call it unclean? And Peter had to revise his conscience, his conscience. And later he had to re-revise his conscience. It was so hard, so hard that Paul had to help him later revise it again. We're going to stop in a minute, but in preparation for another time, I want to tell you that the Greek word for conscience appears 30 times in the New Testament. Michael, could you distribute these for me? Synodesis. Did I say that right? Close. The Greek word for conscience appears 30 times in the New Testament. And I have a list for you to take home with you so you can take a look at it. And Lord willing, we can, we can use that as a starting point the next time that we discuss conscience. And specifically, what I'd like for you to do 
is take this list with you. And when you have some time, try to go look at these verses in context and see if they can teach you anything about conscience. See if, see if seeing the, this, it's 30 times in the New Testament, very interesting. Most of them in Paul, the apostolic writer to the Hebrews, and Peter. So, so take a look at them and then go, look these verses up in context and see if you can learn anything about the conscience. Lord willing, that's where we'll, we'll take up next time. But I know I've said some stuff that might be controversial or thought-provoking. Brother Bill. Martin Luther, uh, you know, in the midst of all his controversy, they wanted him to take back things that he had written. He said, I cannot and will not recant anything to go against my conscience is neither right nor safe. Amen. And then he says, here I stand, I can do no other. He's, he's saying, obey my conscience. I know the scriptures teach it. I'm, I'm not recanting anything. I think there's even provisions for that in human law where we have the status of military quote conscientious objectors where even even pagan lawmakers or litigators have realized this guy would be a big liability in the military and uh, we would rather not have him But yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna memorize a line from Luther, that's a great one. To go against conscience is neither. I think it was right or safe. Or, or safe, safe right. wise or safe, something like that. Yeah. Neither right nor safe. Yes. Any other observations before we close? You got to live with your conscience. And we're going to look at this list, Lord willing, in the days ahead and and talk some about training our consciences. Paul wanted Timothy and Paul wanted for Paul to have a good conscience, a conscience clear before the Lord. And I think that we all want Christians ought to want to have good consciences and consciences that are clear before the Lord. It's a worthy goal. Well, what a blessed day with the saints. Mick, tell Leslie we missed her. Hope she's feeling better soon. Brother Chip, would you dismiss us, please, sir?